0: glad you're here on the Liberated Porch today. In this episode, I talk with Dr. Mack, and we laugh about the word "characterological," as both of us have a difficult time saying this word, even though that we specialize in this. And we talk about some of our experiences with tattoos and chronic illness, also what it's like in being therapists and working with folks with chronic illness and some different cares and considerations whenever working with folks in therapy. So I hope that you really enjoy this podcast and please be mindful that there is sensitive content in this podcast, which may not be suitable for little ears. McKenna Dr. Mac Hereford is a licensed psychologist and host of Revealing the Ivory Tower podcast. She has worked in a variety of settings, including corrections, private practice, and hospitals. Her research has focused on disparities and biases, and clinically, she has specialized with complex cases, queer, non-monogamous folks, and characterological concerns. I can't speak. She provides consultations to healthcare workers on addressing bias, working with complex cases, and marketing. Her social media addresses misconceptions surrounding mental health, cultivates nuance, and takes a critical lens to systems. Thank you so much for being here. I am so excited that you're here. Can you be my
1: hype person everywhere I go? (laughs) That was was the most intro I just need to bring you everywhere even to Walmart I just need to bring you everywhere I'm <laughs> stoked to be here you know I knew
0: that I was going to be tripping on that character. see I I still cannot even say it and we've talked about this before on Instagram because that's where we had connected about these large words where it's like I can read them in my head and whenever they come out of my mouth I just I can't get it
1: Yes, that is the same for me with that word for which the kick shrink, <laughs> shout out to him for calling out on TikTok, really <laughs> pronouncing it. People that work in academia, ac- academician that could, I, I can't, no.
0: <laughs> well, and it's so funny though, because that's one of the areas of work that I do as well, but I can't pronounce it for the life of me. So here,
1: here we are. doing <laughs> Fantastic. You're, you're doing amazing, sweetie. You're doing great. Thank you. Thank you so much.
0: Also, I just have to mention here, because with this being an audio podcast, that you have like all these credentials. You have so much expertise and you have so many tattoos and I love it. And I love how you have like a Spider-Man tattoo on your neck too. Like whenever I saw you... I was like, yeah, you know, I can have all my tattoos too. And I can keep getting tattoos. It's, you are an inspiration. So thank you. Oh my
1: God. Well, thank you. I, you know, I was going to get a V for Vendetta themed chest tattoo. (gasps) Oh my God. I know. But then I thought that might take away from Spidey on my neck. So I'm reconsidering. Um, And yes, my place of work was not... I can, I'm not in it anymore. So I'm fine with calling them out. It was the VA and I'm like, uh, our clients have more tattoos than I do. What is this? (laughs) I'm, I'm struggling to kind of understand that. And, uh, one supervisor was actually very chill and said, well, you know, at least you didn't get a face tattoo. And I swear, Kit, I almost went and got a face tattoo that weekend. there was, the temptation was there. It's still there.
0: So if you were to get a face tattoo, what face tattoo would you get?
1: You know, I've been thinking about this, actually. There, I don't know if I would get one straight on me because I don't know if you've watched Arcane, like based on League of Legends.
0: No, I haven't.
1: Oh, okay. Well, it's animated. It's on Netflix. I cosplay quite a bit. I don't post it as much on you know, my main Instagram, but if there was a character that people have told me 20 times that I need to do, because I am her both visually and then personality wise, I'm not as mask or as like muscular, although I'm working on it, but anyway, her name is Vi <laughs> and she has the tattoo that is like, it says Vi, but it looks like Roman numerals under her <gasps> eye. It looks so hot. <laughs> Um, but the other thing I was thinking about is some people I've seen have gotten that, I know this is audio, so I'm trying to describe it, that space like in front of the ear, like going down. So I saw a hairstylist, Ah, yeah, with a pixie cut who had shears, Mm. like, like cutting shears, scissors going down, um, in front of the ear and like just the, the way that it's, uh, like it can be curved really I think works well in that spot so I was thinking <sighs> about I'm not a big minimalist but I was thinking about a minimalist crane right there because of my dad oh. being a bird biologist and it's cranes and it's oh my biologists. gosh yes
0: <laughs> I love this I 100% support this like I like my pen just flew out of my hand just <laughs> out of like just ecstaticness like Yes, this needs to happen.
1: Yeah, I don't know how he would respond to it, but we could, <laughs> we could find out. I mean, my mom has more tattoos than I do, so I mean, it's fine. No shit. Wow. Yeah. She thought that, that would dissuade me from, from getting tattoos. <laughs> so whenever
0: I got my tattoos and I'm about to get another tattoo coming up, it's going to be... Uh, well, I'm calling it Mama Bear, but Ooh. it's actually a Viking warrior bear where it's like the bear has like a shield and yeah. the bow and arrows and stuff. And it's like roaring or like growling, whatever. So I'm like so excited for it. So I'm going to be getting that next month.
1: That is Awesome. What part of your body are you getting it on if you don't mind sharing?
0: Oh yeah, no problem. So I'm getting it on my right arm because so far I just have my left arm tattooed. Yeah. And so then I'm going to get it on the right because I was like, oh my gosh, I need more ink and stuff. And I found this non-binary tattoo artist in Montreal named oh. Masha Granich, And their work is incredible. They are inspired by Ukrainian folk art. <gasps> and so they do fine line tattoos and they make everything like their own. So like I like come with an idea and then they'll take it and, you know, and, and spin that into their own style, which is just amazing.
1: That is I cannot wait to see pictures. That sounds incredible.
0: Thank you you know, whenever I got tattoos, I was embracing for pain because people would say like, oh, it's going to be so painful. But for me, I was like, wow, this like, this feels like a massage. And Mm -hmm. I can't help but think about the different connections between that and living with chronic illness, living with, Pretty common, pretty frequent pain to the point where it's just like, well, this is a point of l- life, really. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I want to talk with you more about this because, you know, there's so much intersectionality between living with chronic illness or chronic disease and mental
1: health. You know, I, this is probably one of the first times that I guess. I'm, we're focusing more on this. I've talked a bit about it on my Instagram, but more geared toward how complex it is and that, you know, trying to hold space for multiple realities being true at the same time, especially when trying to get diagnosis and treatment, which is always really challenging. And you want like a nice and easy place to put your anger. And sometimes there is, and a Mm -hmm. lot of times there isn't. And so, yeah, I mean, for sure. I I agree with you. If every time I get a tattoo, like when I first got one, I think I was 19. And clearly uh, you can tell because bless it, it has aged. And also I was not picky yet. I did not know how to find amazing tattoo artists. So (laughs) I go and it's on my thigh, which is, you know, one of the easiest places to get it. And I was bracing myself because like you said, everyone's freaks out about it, whatever. And I was like, that's it? And even for the tattoos that have hurt much worse. So I'm sure whenever I get a chest tattoo, I will retract this and I will message you and be like, please get rid of this section because I regret (laughs) everything that I'm going to say. But (laughs) um, but like, you know, getting my elbow tattooed on like hour six, because they never do that first. You know, they're coming up from the wrist and going up to the elbow. So by the time you Mm -hmm. hit that really sensitive part, it starts wearing, even then I am with you. I would much rather feel that more superficial kind of pain. And also it's a nice distraction <laughs> from any yeah. other pain that I might be feeling or, or, you know, if you have other types of symptoms, like I would much rather do, even when I go, I had to get my annual blood work done for the endocrinologist a couple weeks ago. <laughs> and every time I'm like trying to hype up the phlebotomist. I turn full therapist because it doesn't matter how much water I drink. I tell him, okay, we got to use a butterfly needle. We're going to blow some veins. It's okay. This does not reflect on your self-worth or your ability to do your job. You're doing amazing, sweetie, because it's, it's all, it's all fucked. I'm sorry. I can <laughs> pass here, but like, it's all jacked up. So in this last time, it's the same, the last couple of times where, I mean, they feel really confident. And then apparently my veins were like, "Mm," and I took that personally. So they're (laughs) having to, you know, put it in, you know, the inside of your elbow, but they have to dig around in there. So even this Mm -hmm. last time she's like fully poking around with a needle. And I'm sure anyone listening to this is probably going to be like, ooh. but again, (laughs) I would still much rather feel that pain. That's still like superficial pain. I mean, not as much as a tattoo, but still prefer to feel their, you know, different types of pain. I mean, I would much rather feel that than the joint pain or connected tissue, or, I mean, I don't have bone pain, but I've heard that that's like the worst, like Mm -hmm. of course I would rather feel anything that's on the skin or just below it.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, with this, I <laughs> I tell phlebotomists I say I have weenie veins that that's what I call them, <laughs> and I have a list of funny stories that I just recycle for whenever I talk to a phlebotomist to kind of ease the tension in the room because I know that they're going to be digging around in there like you know trying to dig for treasure type of a thing. <laughs> You know, like I just kind of like picture like the California gold rush and they're yes. just like they're just like trying to get their little pan in there, you know, and yeah and find find the the gold and, and sifting through this, but it's it's very hard. I started going through this whenever I was four years old and, and so it's not mm-hmm. a new concept to me. And whenever because I I mean, you know, the listeners must have guessed by now we both live with chronic illness. (laughs) No. Yeah. Amazing. (laughs) Whenever I talk to clients who have chronic illness, you know, sometimes they apologize for saying, you know, dicking around in the veins or talking about poop and, or blood, you know, and I'm, I'm like, you don't have to apologize to me. Like, I think that we need to normalize talking about this more. And if a therapist feels uncomfortable with it, then they need to check themselves about why they're feeling uncomfortable about talking about these things.
1: Yeah, a hundred percent. Immediately, I'm thinking, you know, I'm wondering, is it totally internalized and or has that messaging been given to them from someone else because yeah also in my personal life i want to hear about poop stories like i Same. can't tell you how often the set scientist Paige lemon and i are dming on instagram about just random poop stories but but yeah in the therapy space um and then also as i'm merging more into the sex therapy space oh my God, now it's like double the stigma of like, okay, now we have chronic illness. We might have, you know, things that feel really icky talking about. And then also like, do I feel embarrassed talking about the sex side of things?
0: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Because with part of this and with intimacy, I noticed that this is something that gets brought up a lot in working with folks with chronic illness. And- I'm wondering about for you, because, you know, self-disclosure can be sticky in the kind of work that we do. And, you know, and some people do self-disclosure more than others. And I'm wondering, whenever you're working with folks with chronic illness, when do you decide if you're going to self-disclose or not?
1: Ooh, yes. I am more likely to self-disclose about chronic pain than I am other aspects of my life, Mm -hmm. especially if I am in a hospital type setting or something where the clients or patients, I guess in that case, are frequently kind of given a directive approach. You need to do this thing, like suck it up. You need to do the work, blah, blah, Mm -hmm. blah. And so it's easy then to, especially if I'm working directly alongside them to, you know, kind of assume like, Hey, this person in front of me doesn't understand what I'm going through. And so like you Mm -hmm. said, it's a very careful line to ride. I don't always do it, but really having the question in the back of my mind, okay, if I'm doing this, am I doing it for the client or am I doing it for me? If I'm doing it for me, then I'm going to back off. If I think that, this might facilitate some trust in the relationship, especially given, you know, like you talked about disparities being in my background. There's a lot related to chronic illness and then a lot of other intersecting identities about being mistreated by Mm -hmm. both the healthcare system and mental healthcare system. And then, you know, directly by providers sometimes. And so, Yeah, that's actually a space where I didn't used to talk about it as much. But that aspect of my life, I am much more likely to talk about upfront, you know, if that especially if that's part of maybe what they're coming to therapy to work on is how to cope with it or, you know, acceptance and commitment therapy, or maybe we're taking a totally different route. And that's explicitly part of the thing that they're coming in and they want to work on. Then, you know, if I'm asking them to do that then it's important for them to know that I'm also doing that with them.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. In my first year of being a licensed therapist, I was working in a hospital setting while I was working in patient chemical dependency unit. And they had alarms that... Did not work well for people with neurological conditions. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: I ended up having a seizure in front of my patients. Oh
1: my God. And yeah. (laughs) For everyone, for you too. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. And that was, I I had let them know before, um, you know, hey, you know, I really need you to change the alarm. And everything. And um, because sometimes you can fight off a seizure to a certain extent, but it got to the point where, you know, I just couldn't fight anymore, just ceased. And so then they realized, oh, wow, this is like traumatic for patients to be watching this. And so then they ended up, um, you know, changing the alarm, but that's what it took. And after having that experience, I thought before maybe I would never disclose about living with chronic health conditions. But I realized, I was like, you know what, sometimes this does show up in the work that I do. Like whenever, um, whenever I was working in person, sometimes I would be walking with a limp because of the pain that I was in, but still needing to show up for work. My clients were compassionate and asked me, you know, like, hey, did you hurt yourself? And so I think with part of this, it's really showing that you're being human. And I think it starts to be eliminating the power dynamics whenever people start to see that humanity of having a therapist or having a clinician who lives with a chronic illness.
1: I love that you shared that too, because a lot of aspects we hide, including from, from our clients. And so what happens when you can't hide that and it might show up in the room, but you're also trying to not take up too much space from the client, but you also can't Really help. But I mean, first, that's awful. And I'm sorry that that happened to you. And it seems like it really opened doors for you. And it, it's similar to me still kind of struggling with how to disclose narcolepsy to people, which is, you know, also a neurological disorder. And I thought that out of the like charcuterie board of diagnoses that I have, (laughs) narcolepsy would be the easiest one to treat because there are more like medications available Mm -hmm. It's not the case. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, if I am, I'm trying to be really protective of, okay, I have to take naps, which sounds absolutely Mm -hmm. ridiculous to the average person. Um, But there have been times where I started... I try to save it for meetings, (laughs) Um, but if I'll have a sleep attack for those people that don't know, you know, on baseline, it's like I'm back in grad school and I'm running on 48 to 72 hours of no sleep in general. Mm -hmm. Um, and most days I have at least two stimulants, (laughs) uh, and when a sleep attack happens, which happens daily, it's this like, it's like when you're really drunk and you, you're you not fainting, but it's an irresistible, like you're not going to be able to stop it. You can't will yourself through it, which is not what mm-hmm. I do with pain. I can will myself through that. There have been times where similar to you, like I've had to let places and, you know, patients would ask, I actually preferred them asking over our, other healthcare providers and like just that dynamic. But yeah, it's like, you know, how do I disclose that to clients up front that, you know, this could come up. And if I'm ever fighting back a yawn or you notice, I promise like it is absolutely nothing to do with you. It is a hundred percent due to narcolepsy. Now, if I'm at an Mm -hmm. academic conference and that talk is very boring, I'm going to let them sit in that. They can just their <laughs> boring ass talk and I'm not going to tell them that if there's an external reason for that.
0: Oh, right on. You know, and if I'm going to be going to any in-person conference for mental health these days, they better be having play That's all
1: I yeah. got to say. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. But going back to this, you know, with part of this, a lot of times and searching for a diagnosis and for the treatment, there tends to be a lot of trauma and a lot of gaslighting. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering in the work that you do, how do you work with clients of processing through medical gaslighting? Because it's like, okay, so we might've experienced that directly and living with chronic illness ourselves, but it may not be appropriate to share that with a client. And then we're in this role of being a health professional. And so there's all of these different layers there.
1: Yes. That one was the ultimate dialect for me, especially, you know, having, like you said, your feet in both camps. So especially working in, Medical setting. So I also uh worked in a pediatric sickle cell clinic. So mm. a lot of kiddos experiencing, I mean, it's a spectrum of severity of symptoms depending on the sickle cell and a lot of different factors, but a ton of pain there. And yeah. obviously, there can be a pretty significant racial component because it doesn't exclusively mm-hmm. show up in Black patients or people from African descent but much more likely to and there are evolutionary reasons for that that you know we can talk about later and whatever but it can cause a ton of pain it can be life-threatening all those things and seeing the kids turn to adolescence and there wouldn't be great enough treatment if you're not severe enough to get a blood transfusion or like an Mm. organ transplant and you have a pain crisis it's like the only thing at that time maybe it, you know it's expanded now hopefully mm-hmm. but the only thing they had at that time was opioids to just like help them pass pass through that and seeing you know so they go to the er which means of course they're not going through their sickle cell clinic it's probably like maybe a friday night at 10 pm or something like that so they need to go to the er and the er doctors same kid now they're an adolescent And they're treated differently and seen as drug seeking and Mm. me kind of wanting to intervene, but also recognizing there's a hierarchy there too. Any psychologist will tell you this, like in many hospitals, physicians are just hierarchically above psychologists. And also I'm not the one prescribing the opioids. So, um, and I don't know all the history there and, you know, I'm kind of watching it and the hematologist in the sickle cell clinic was black. And I just was awe. I got my popcorn. I was trying to like hide my facial expressions. She ripped the ER doctors every time this happened, like three new assholes. And it was amazing (laughs) modeling for me. So, So then fast forward, I'm working in the VA. I have more diagnoses, more symptoms now, and I can still mostly hide it, which obviously with all invisible identities and experiences as a double-edged sword, here's where I love it because, Mm -hmm. you know, working in integrated care and patients would come in and they're experiencing chronic pain and nothing seems to be working. And the assumption then is that the client is difficult or that it's something Mm. that the client's not doing or they're not, you know, the, the typical meritocracy essentially like pull yourself up by the bootstraps. If you try hard enough, if you believe in yourself.
0: <laughs> um, if you no. didn't
1: think, they didn't say that, but it really, that's like <laughs> the subtext. Um, yep. Yep. That, so, you know, you'll be able to get it under control. And I can't tell you how many times because then, mm. yeah, my feet in both camps, I'm working with the clients. I had to work through my counter transference because I tend to take a very, what we call in the field, like over-controlled approach. So, although I'm getting better, I'm much less likely to talk about it. In my own mind, I'm telling myself like suck. Basically the same thing that these healthcare providers are very clearly articulating to patients.
0: Mm -hmm. So I
1: had to kind of work through that, Mm -hmm. but I'm like, listen, yeah, Yeah, these are people that like went into combat and they've seen people die and you're essentially Mm -hmm. kind of telling them they're being whiny. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, we would do consultation groups or supervision especially the health psychologists, And they would say continually, you know, I'm trying cognitive behavioral therapy for chronic pain and just, God, pain patients are so difficult. And what I love is that now I get to pull an epic, like M. Night Shyamalan plot twist. And now I get to (laughs) disclose after you've told on yourself, like the quiet part, you've said it out loud. I didn't have to corner you or pull it out of you. You said it right there. So now I get to disclose. And Mm -hmm. we're going to make you sit in that for a second. Um, Sometimes I would be petty if it was to not like a boss, but someone that was like, you know, in the same level of training program. And if I was feeling particularly petty because we were kind of friends outside of it, I might say, um... You can shut the fuck up because I saw you call out for hiccups or like a cold the other day. Okay, (laughs) like Shut the fuck up. Um, It was more like roasting. So it was, was, I want everyone to know it was very playful. Uh, But I still got my point. I got my point across. We had a very like roasting style relationship.
0: Um, But
1: to people where I did not have that relationship or if it was like, I'm in a power down position because maybe I'm a trainee or it's like someone way above me and they say that, you know, I would then kind of disclose, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, I actually relate to them. Like I felt this way. I've experienced this. Um, and then, you know, if it's a more, and like, if, if you tried cognitive behavioral therapy for chronic pain, the way you're doing it with me, I would cuss you out. I would walk out. Like that would be the end of it because you're not including these and these and these things. If you're going to use CBT, you know, leaving room for grief, the internalized ableism, like it takes so much empathy to sit with chronic pain that I mean, really it's avoidance of, you know, you being, you being willing, you know, you're asking, even with act, mm-hmm. willingness is a huge piece. You're asking the client, like, what are they willing to sit with? But I think a fair question is also like, what are you willing
0: to sit yeah. with, with them? Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And with the whole CBT piece, I think a lot of times there is this power dynamic where it's like power over rather than power with. Mm-hmm. And so then it just simulates the medical traumas and medical mm-hmm. gaslightings that people experience,
1: yeah. and this um this showed up even with a group consultation I did recently. Um, I had a a client that did not have a diagnosis and had a lot of really weird, at this point, I would consider subjectively chronic because it had lasted like, you know, over a year. And it's kind of saying how um, just the presentation of this client was unique. And so I was Mm. looking for suggestions, especially with maybe like interventions, like getting creative with it. Yeah. And I'll never forget that one of the psych, of course, who's older, um, said, you know, is it possible? And I'm like, oh, OK, we're going to take a deep breath already. Is it possible that there's something driving those symptoms? You know, is there something psychologically like he's getting from it? Because it just seems so like outlandish that he hasn't been able to get answers yet after seeing you know, dozens and dozens of doctors. Like, I mean, that just seems impossible. And I I took deep breath because I'm, Mm. this is not the informal setting where I, (laughs) you know, just, and I'm like, we're going to take a deep breath. We're going to take a deep breath. Mm -hmm. And I said, what would happen if that was true though? There's something Mm. about that that seems like, because what happens if that's true? Like that the client, does have something wrong medically, like we can measure it. There is something going on Mm -hmm. and they're not, Mm -hmm. it's not psychosomatic, meaning like it's totally psychological, like how does that make you feel? There's something about that Mm. that seems so unbearable to consider because of course then it could happen to anyone Mm -hmm. that cannot be calculable. And then of course I, you know, so we did sit with that for a second. And mm-hmm. I said, you know, it, <laughs> I have a genetic connective tissue disorder. I was born with it. It's autosomal dominant, which meant I had 50% chance of getting it. And it runs in my family. I'm the first person to get diagnosed. And I was 30 when I got diagnosed mm-hmm. and it took me. So 30 years and I'm in my early thirties. Okay. And for narcolepsy, I was diagnosed with sleep apnea. It took me over a decade to get properly diagnosed. And I'm telling him this and he's like, wow, that must've been really difficult. And like, I wonder if you're relating, but like how, you know, and I'm sitting here like, I don't really care. See, for me, I'm like, I don't really give a shit <laughs> what the facts are here. Yeah. Like how are we going to help this client? Because I'm not a medical provider at the end of the day. So sitting here and like, yes, there are yeah. some dynamic potentially factors at play like there are for everyone. But we're hyper-focusing on that and viewing this as, like, mutually exclusive. I've even, I'm even – you know, it could be a combination of – but like, who the fuck knows? Mm-hmm. But if your immediate reaction is, oh, that seems so implausible, why does that seem – because then what would that mean, you know, if, if that mm. person is so miserable and they've been trying for years to get answers, they can barely function, what does that mean then? And that's when people mm. usually – have to kind of confront the quote, quiet part, their own psychodynamic parts, really. Mm.
0: I really like that reframe. And I wish that more people would hear this kind of reframe, because what that doctor said happens is well is said in healthcare meetings so often. Mm -hmm. And I think that in looking at these different care meetings that taking a look at transference and counter-transference and doing shadow work is some of the most important work that can be done in the, in these care meetings.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And also there's like this assumption then that all, all medical knowledge has already been discovered. Hmm. Like I think a more challenging piece is certainly there's already, there are already a ton of barriers for like narcolepsy. We know what it is. We even probably know what causes it, which is, I mean, as a scientist, like I find really fascinating, but like we have clear cut answers and even then it takes forever for people to get diagnosed. I think an even more difficult place then is there are things going on physiologically. Maybe there are psychological factors contributing, but there are, medical things happening. We don't have the science yet, maybe to fully understand what this phenomenon is. So what do we do with that then? Oh, well, because we don't have an answer, that means it doesn't exist, which totally Mm. goes against medicine and all science. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: Absolutely.
0: Something that I've seen in my work with people living with chronic health conditions who have gotten just consistently medically gaslit is that they get so tired they get Mm -hmm. so burned out Mm -hmm. that they stop adhering to the protocols Mm -hmm. for their physical health and they do so in a way where as a mental health professional like we would call it passive suicidal ideation yeah what that means is whenever a person does this, I've heard this phrase before from folks, if I die, I die. I'm just Mm -hmm. not taking my medication, or I'm not doing this certain thing, because I'm not getting answers. I, you know, continue to have a poor quality of life. So I'm just not going to be following through. And I'm wondering if you have seen that in your practice and, and seeing that, how do you respond to that? And how do you work with care providers or the clients and patients and dealing with just this deep discouragement?
1: Yeah, it's such like an important question, I think, because it's that hopelessness. It's Kind of like what we would see if maybe there isn't chronic illness going on, but they're so severely depressed and people really underestimate how challenging it can be facing severe depression where you don't even have the energy to get up and act on suicidal thoughts. You don't have the energy to engage in any of like behavioral activation or like any of these therapeutic interventions that we might use. It's kind of the same thing here. It's I've lost all these different resources like whether it's external resources whether it's internal resources I've lost like what gives my life meaning you know whether you come from that from a spiritual or existential place or like a values kind of place losing that and yeah I mean I think that's super common if I'm totally honest there have been times where I felt that way a hundred mm-hmm. I think most people with oh yeah And it's such a, it's a huge risk factor for suicide. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just, it's that hopelessness that comes in. You know, when I hear that, I'm hearing, I don't want to act on this. I'm feeling absolutely a hundred percent stuck and hopeless and helpless. And so whenever I hear that from clients, obviously first, like really appreciating the fact that they're sharing that because, I know so many people are worried that if they share anything related to suicide, they're immediately going to get hospitalized, straight to jail. Like, do not pass go. <laughs> like you're going to go inpatient. Um, you're going to grippy stock vacation. Um, so obviously, I'm not going to do that. But I mean, clients don't always know that, so it's a risk to even disclose that, which is important to kind of sit with that and me allowing myself then to sit in like that hopelessness with them and the stuckness because I also. Might feel that way, and so that relates to working with healthcare providers is, if they're reacting, there is a like dynamic thing or countertransference thing happening. Like for example, do they feel the urge, like the provider? Do they feel the urge to? I know I've done this to over function, like overcompensate. Okay, I'm going to make all these calls. I'm going to do all the thing. I'm going to do spend hours and hours and hour on this to help you. Mm-hmm. Um, even though it's going to potentially like ha- come at a cost to care to other clients or patients or my own mental health, especially cause like you said, like maybe I'm a provider that knows like all these barriers that they're facing. So I'm going to go out of my way to work as hard as I can so that we can get them help and I can prove them wrong that I'm not like every other provider. Um, or it's the. I'm feeling frustrated because I'm internalizing that almost of taking it personally. Like they don't give a shit or they don't want to change. So I think there are a lot of different Mm -hmm. routes to go with the healthcare providers. And if I have the time, it depends on how much time I have,
0: uh, Mm -hmm. or they
1: have really, you know, if we're kind of running in the hallway somewhere together, when I worked in medical settings, maybe talk more about motivational interviewing or, um, like what other resources, like you don't, for any presenting concerns, I guess, from the provider standpoint, that doesn't need to fall all on that provider. And they might be feeling either way, no matter what the reaction is from them, they're feeling that pressure. And then the reaction is because of a bunch of, you know, other factors at play. And we might Mm -hmm. have to process that, like, where's this coming from for you? Like, what does that mean? Like, what are the factors contributing? It could be their own burnout or whatever the case is. And then Mm -hmm. for the client, it's kind of the same thing. Like, it doesn't need to fall all on the client either. And it it shouldn't. Um, I know that culturally, I know that you've talked about this. A lot of people talk about this. Our values are very individualistic. And so that Mm -hmm. puts a lot of emphasis on personal responsibility, which I mean, sometimes can be super helpful and empowering. It also then in situations like this creates a lot of problems because there's a lot of shame or feeling inadequate or like guilt reaching out and not not community support or, you know, deferring to the client. And I think what are supports here that, what does that look like? Do we need Mm. to create some distance? Do we need to, like, I tend to use a lot of what we call diffusion. Like I have Hashimoto's and I have two nodules on my thyroid and I call them Cosmo and Wanda from (laughs) fairly often. (laughs) Um, but you know, like, yeah, like introducing some humor in it, like introducing, you know, externalizing it. Because if, uh-huh. if the problem is yeah. it's totally internalized, okay, so then what does harmony look like? Okay, how do we externalize yeah. that? So it's not you and like a personality flaw or moral failing, but this thing that is like kind of stuck to you. So if, you know, especially with younger clients that tend to be more familiar with pop culture, I might ask them something like, okay, so if you're chronic pain, Or any emotions, too. If it was any character, and, you know, if we need to narrow it down, that's cool, too. Video games or comics or whatever. And it's in the room with us right now, who would it be? And, like, what's your reaction to it? Or, like, does it have main Mm -hmm. character energy? Um, Does it have villain energy? Because that still means that it has, like, it's getting a lot of attention. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah. Kind of, okay, so it's here. Do we? Does grief need to be, like, kind of thinking, like, what are the barriers, all the barriers that are at play. What are all the resources? How do we capitalize yes. on the resources? How do we overcome the barriers? How do we, you know, is it difficulty accepting that this pain is present? And I mm-hmm. have mixed feelings about the concept of acceptance because it doesn't mean I agree with it, but am, am I allowing it to be here right now? Um, and that gets really difficult. And sometimes it's the grief, um, the mm-hmm. loss, of like what was, what could have been, what this means, how I'm treated by mm-hmm. others. So yeah, a very long-winded answer, but many different routes that can be taken. I think both with clients and like other healthcare professionals.
0: Yeah, I love doing visualizations with clients yeah. of mine living with chronic illness, and they tend to find that that's the most effective for them and managing the stress that comes with living with chronic illness and also helping and managing some of the pain points as well um, of using the visualizations. And I really liked how you were talking about the personification and and visualizing that. And whenever you were talking about individualism, because I, I love talking about how there's different cultures that are more individualistic than others and how there's been, you know, such this just, With capitalistic healthcare, it has been focused very much on just the one person whenever we're mostly hardwired to have collectivism and not be having everything placed on our shoulders. And I think about all the folks living with chronic illness who may come from unsupportive family environments, or relationships, or maybe in domestic violence. And just, I hate the phrase frequent flyer, Mm. that is used in the healthcare system. And it needs to be done away with. And there needs to be more curiosity, more curiosity about a person's environment, and be assessing to see is this person affected by domestic violence? Does this person have safe supports for them? Are they feeling burnt out by self-care? Because there's so much emphasis placed on you got to do self-care to the point where it can cause burnout for people and trying to care for themselves.
1: Oh, yes. A hundred, a hundred percent. It's just, what does self-care even mean at this point? It's so overused. It's just, we're just slapping it on there. Like one of my new, one of my new providers is trying to find a medication to help with the narcolepsy. And one of the things she said at the end of the intake, and I could tell it was automatic and she had already forgotten that I'm a psychologist. And she had said, and she's extremely inundated. So I'm trying to hold space for all of this at the same time because also getting better care also means advocating for providers too. And that's really difficult to hold space for all of this. Um, and at the end she goes, okay, you know, remember like sleep hygiene is really important and, you know, maybe making sure you're not around, um, you know, blue screens before you go to sleep. And I was like, babe, that's not an issue for me. If you could actually <laughs> sprinkle some insomnia on me, that would be amazing. And unfortunately, sleep hygiene's not really going to fix it, but I love the you know, medical equivalent of thoughts and prayers. Essentially, <laughs> <laughs> Oh my
0: gosh. Going back to, you used the word hopelessness mm-hmm. that People with chronic illness often experience or have experienced at least in a period of, of their life. I, I know I've experienced it before in my life whenever I didn't have the right diagnoses yet and didn't have the right treatments yet. And then with that self care piece, and I think a lot of times there's so much ableism that mm-hmm. is infiltrated into the mental health care system and people who might've had physical health conditions, and then they found relief, and then they have this story, and then they say, buy my book, buy my brand, do this and that. And it's this kind of prosperity type gospel that in some ways, rather than instilling hope, it can cause more frustrations and it's a form of gaslighting itself. I love the little bits that you do about Natasha, where <laughs> it's um, for listeners who don't know about this alter ego that Dr. Mack has, she pretends to be an influencer, a healthcare influencer named Natasha. And it's absolutely hilarious, but I'm wondering, what do you do? With your clients that are feeling hopeless, and do you sit in the hopelessness with them? Do you try to instill hope, or is sitting in the hopelessness the way that helps guide people out of that?
1: Well, I just send them a link to Natasha's smoothie plant. No, I'm just kidding. <sighs> Um, Wait, I need to bring her back Tell out. me
0: about this smoothie plan here. I, uh, I'm looking for a new smoothie
1: for the month of August. Do you have a subscription plan here? Oh yeah. You know, for just three payments of 1299, you can get unlimited access to me and my smoothies. Um,
0: <laughs> no way. You know what? I heard that flaxseed is the new thing. Do you think that that
1: cures seizures? Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, I need to. I need to bring Natasha back up. Uh, yeah, I think. I think that's a good question. I'd love to hear from you too on on how you approach this because I think the gift and sometimes overwhelming thing for me is because I've worked in so many different settings, all of them have annoyed me. <laughs> for different for different reasons so I did not go clinical psych I went counseling psych which there are kind of I mean the differences are pretty small at this point but get more pronounced depending on the setting that you're working in or I'm in more therapy-based settings or like medical based everyone has I see deficits in all of them and so That allows me a chance to kind of zoom out probably more so and notice that really all the different approaches, even things that are beyond therapy. I talked to a friend that's a shaman and a lot of the Mm -hmm. things that she does, I mean, the language is different and slightly different approach, but kind of similar, like a lot of the things do similar things sitting in the hopelessness, I think can be super helpful. I mean, maybe the length of time probably varies client to client, but one is just like, obviously avoidance is probably not whatever they're using to avoid. This is probably not super helpful, although very understandable because who Mm -hmm. wants to sit? I mean, I don't know anyone that wants to sit in it, the stuckness of it and sitting in it with them. And also so that they can understand, okay, that there's someone who's willing to sit in this with them relationally, Mm -hmm. I think is important because there are probably lots of people that are incapable or unwilling to do that. And they may not have a lot of social support to begin with, or could be other, you know, relational things coming into play. And also that they know what hopelessness feels like and allowing them to sit in that and make space for it, even if it's for a short period or not that much, knowing that, okay, I can tolerate This. And in fact, I might be more willing to tolerate this than the physical pain. Or are there other things that are worse than this Mm -hmm. or better than this or getting those delineations? And then I think the instilling hope piece, I think it really depends on the person that I'm working with and kind of the vibe or what I sense or even just getting feedback from them. Because in my mind, if I come from a liberation, again, liberated porch Uh, if I come come from a liberal the idea then is that the person in front of me has the answers they they have barriers Mm -hmm. to getting the answers otherwise why would they be in the space with me but the idea is that like yeah I might know the science of the I the person in front of me has has the answers it's just how do we help them find I guess a different kind of treasure, <laughs> uh, finding those, <laughs> those answers. And I think it really aligns with, yeah, the title of this podcast, which I think is amazing. I'm from Mississippi. I'm just, I'm thinking almost literally when people sit on front porches with people, especially in the South. I mean, probably not right now. Cause it's invariably hot, but in general, you're sitting in that you might be having really light conversations. You might be having heavy conversations and you might be having this with other people and that shared experience and then holding space for you maybe providing you with things that you need or you're doing that alone you're kind of hanging out on that porch alone but you're observing and so yeah i think it it really and it needs to be comprehensive and we shouldn't be relying on only therapy to help this person heal either mhm the yeah, mm-hmm. i love it from you yeah Yeah, absolutely.
0: Also, that is why I called it the liberated porch is because I'm like, you know what? Like the porch is a meeting place to talk about the light things or the heavy things out of every place I've lived. Like I currently live in the Northeast. I grew up in the Midwest. I lived for a bit of time in the South. And what all these different cultures had in common was sitting on the porch and the porch being a gathering place. And, you know, so you asked me about what my approach is about the hopelessness. And I've realized in my own experience and just hearing about the experiences from my clients, a lot of times they feel hopeless because they feel like they won't ever be seen or they won't ever be heard. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And sometimes it is just in sitting in that discomfort with them and saying, I see you, I hear you, I believe you. That really helps. And also just talking with them about what is going to make therapy appointments even just manageable for them. Yeah. Definitely. I do all work from home. And so I ask my clients with chronic health conditions how much time do you have that you feel like you could get the most out of this therapy session? Sometimes they say 20 minutes, sometimes they say 60 minutes, but I let them set that boundary. Or Mm -hmm. sometimes they say, hey, I need to turn off my camera. And I say, no problem. I'll turn off my camera with you too, you know? And so it's just meeting the people where they're at that I think is really important. And I like bringing in the piece about radical acceptance too, of radically accepting that And living with chronic illness, that means that there's not going to be this ability to fit into an ableist culture. And so looking at what the abilities are there, though, to be able to have the best quality of life while living with these symptoms and giving grace and compassion to yourself whenever maybe you're not able to do the things or show up in the ways that you would like. And I also like to look at self-advocacy and practicing Mm -hmm. self-advocacy in the medical settings. And, you know, if I have clients who are practicing assertiveness in medical settings and they continue to get gaslit, then I talk with them about, you know, is there a possibility of transferring providers so that you can be seen and heard? And, sometimes that's the hope there of finding a care team that a person can trust that they have their best intentions for them.
1: Wow. We can just wrap up the podcast right there. That was (laughs) (laughs) yeah. Yeah. The advocacy piece too, even though that part I've had to learn on my own, because my background is not social worker case management. I think that's, I think that I've seen that medical advocates, that field is understandably growing to try to address all these barriers to care. But yeah, like these advocacy pieces and how do you do that? And um, even having tips for, and a resource list maybe ourselves as providers of, Mm -hmm. okay, who in the community? Do we know like I'm going to go to and who would we definitely not send? Like what types of settings, like university settings Mm -hmm. tend to, um, have more up-to-date care they have mm-hmm. more room because the classes and peace obviously usually is an issue of like lack of financial wealth or resources to pull from too gets challenging and i love what you said about even the modality of therapy that's been so cool with teletherapy especially mm-hmm. yeah we got to consider that piece too
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely hundred percent. you know, I, I think that telehealth therapy can just make therapy so much more accessible for people living with chronic health conditions. I know for myself, I'm able to show up better as a therapist and be healthier in doing telehealth and I'm so grateful to
1: have it. Same. A hundred, a hundred percent.
0: Well, something I'm wondering, is if you could offer your younger self one piece of advice about
1: liberation, what would that be? Mm. That it requires patience. Mm. <laughs> patience mm-hmm. and endurance. Because mm-hmm. I was very, still am, if I'm being honest, very impatient. And it is a marathon and not a sprint often. And instead of, I guess, practicing radical acceptance in that, in that way, because then that allows me to participate in that dance. It's not a quick turn around but it allows me a longer runway and a more sustainable way to yeah to approach liberation. It's not something that's gonna happen overnight and that's okay and you can reserve that energy then you can reserve it to do other things it gives you time that you otherwise probably wouldn't think that you had.
0: Mm, yeah absolutely. I wish that I understood patience a lot better whenever I was younger
1: and the beauty of that same I I mean I'm saying that like I have this nailed down it's absolutely not and it's a work in progress <laughs>
0: <laughs> we are all works in progress
1: but True. I just gotta tell you
0: this has been such a blast in talking with you and I'm just so glad that you came on today In honor of you living in Texas, I made barbecue for dinner, so it is waiting for me. And I, yes, I was like, I have to make something that's (laughs) (laughs) Texas-inspired. I'm honored. (laughs) If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and subscribe this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you would be interested in being a guest on this podcast, reach out to me in my Instagram, which is the liberated porch.